Hi, this is Chantel Schieffer, President and CEO of Leadership Montana. Views and opinions shared by guests of Listen First Montana do not reflect the opinions of all of our alumni or organization. We are a large group with lots of opinions, believe me. If you hear something that makes you uncomfortable, we invite you to listen deeply, listen hard, and listen first. Welcome to Listen First Montana, a podcast of Leadership Montana. I'm Eric Halverson. This morning, I'm in Billings with Leonard Malin, one of the most thoughtful people you'll ever meet and a member of the Leadership Montana Board of Governors. We'll talk to Leonard about a variety of topics, including his rich family history in Montana, his self-work and learning on the topic of racism over the past year, and how that learning has influenced his Montana identity. You see, Leonard is a proud Montanan. He considers Billings home, but he grew up in Malta and says his rural upbringing is central to his outlook on the world. On his father's side, he's the son of a Montana pioneer family, and his mother was an immigrant. Over the last year, and especially since the death of George Floyd, Leonard has been working hard to deepen his understanding of topics like racism and anti-racism. We'll hear about how that learning has put him at odds with long-term friends and how he navigates that complex dynamic. Leonard has some fascinating professional insights to share as well. With expertise in finance, HR, and accounting, he's worked the majority of his career in the private sector. Banking in Glasgow, mining in Billings, instruction at a variety of higher ed institutions, all the while serving on different nonprofit boards. But in 2017, he went to work in the nonprofit sector for the first time at Tumbleweed Runaway Program, which provides services and support to runaway, homeless, and at-risk youth. We'll ask Leonard about what he learned from his time on the ground in the nonprofit world and what he sees as the barriers that nonprofits face to maximizing impact. Leonard is the father to a son and two daughters. They call him Pops. Grandpa to Arlo, who calls him Papa, and husband to Janan, who calls him Malin. His superpower is brewing great beer, and maybe a first for this podcast, he's an introvert. <laughs> Leonard, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Eric. As we sit here on a bright, sunshiny morning um, on MSUB campus and Billings on September 25th, um, I wonder how you are, and not sort of the Hey, how you doing? But more, how are you? I'm, I'm actually um, doing really well. Um, in amongst these, you know, difficult times, um, it, it's really an odd time to ask somebody that. Um, because, you know, for eight months now, we've been uh, living in a world of pandemic, um, which is really turned things upside down and um during that time we also um had some issues serious issues with race relations in this country um that again have have changed the the atmosphere um and then dealing with the presidential election so um i'm very well aware of all those things um and 
I'm still I'm still feeling good. I'm I'm also not working, uh, which I would really like to get back to work. It is a weird and crazy time uh, to be looking for work. Um, but I've been really productive um, over this time, and 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 I'm and I'm feeling good. Um, I'm also optimistic that um, that we will um, respond to this these challenges in a very positive way. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm feeling good, that there's a lot of noise out there, but I think underlying all this is, 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 a, is a sense that um, we, will, we will come through this and we will be better because of it. So, so let's, um, let's pull back a little bit and think about, um, you had mentioned that where you grew up really shapes who you are. And you've, you grew up in Malta, but you've been all over Montana. And you mentioned to me several times that you have a ton of pride in your identity as a Montanan and your family's history here. So can you talk about that? Um, yeah, I do. Um, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, my dad is, um, you know, from a, we, we, we are part of the Montana pioneers. Um, I have um, a great, um, I believe he's a great uncle that um, actually served on the first constitutional conventions in, in Montana. So this would have been pre-territory. Um, there was one in 1884 and there was one in 1889. Um, and it, it, it's interesting that that same person um, in my lineage is actually the founder of uh, the city of Colson, which predated Billings. Um, um, Perry McAdow is his name. And, you know, he founded Colson, uh, somebody else founded Billings, and the railroad chose Billings, and so there is no longer a city of Colson. There's a park out on the river. Um, but, uh, but he was, again, one of, one, of the, one of the original people in this valley. Um, and I don't know if you know where, um, what is it, Blue Dog Records? Uh-uh. Uh, there's a used record store on the corner of Minnesota and 27th. Okay. Um, if you go by there, you'll see it. And um, uh, they're on the south side. And that is considered the oldest building in Montana, and that was built by Perry McAdow, my, my great uncle. And so my dad was, um, my dad was born and raised in um, the Gallatin Valley, um, actually over on the Madison in, in Logan. Um, it's interesting. I see these, these different things now about... Um, you know, if you were born in this year, and, um, you know, I, I wish you were still around. I'd love to talk to him about it. But my dad was born in 1909, and so he lived through the um, Spanish flu pandemic. He lived through World War One. He lived through the Great Depression. He lived through and served in World War II. Um, and... Um, and so, you know, when I think about that, and, you know, I, I was able to share some of that stuff with, with my dad, but not as much as I would have liked to have. So, um, but that, that's kind of on my dad's side. And again, uh, really deep roots in Montana, which I, which I am proud of. Um, but they're the white roots, to be honest with you. Um, we weren't, we were, we were immigrants um, to the state of Montana, um, much like most people here. Um, and my mom, um, 
w- was an immigrant. I'm, I'm first generation on my mom's side. Um, she um, was born in Holland. Um, she's a little bit younger than my dad. Um, she was born in 1922, uh, but she lived through World War II in the most true sense of the word, um, in occupied Holland, uh, German occupation. Um, I've, I've walked through her hometown with my mom's sister. I never got over to Holland with my mom, but I got over there with her, with her sister. And she described, um, when the Nazis, um, you know, came and took over their city, you know, they were, um, they were having a regular day when people came up from the river and said, the Nazis are here. And, you know, that was, that was them for the rest of their time until the, uh, until the American GIs uh, liberated them uh, in 1945, I believe. So, uh, and it's interesting to hear my mom's uh, story about those times and working for the, working for the Dutch resistance and working to um, help protect um, the Jewish residents of their town. So those were things that my, my mom did, and that was my mom's uh, experience as a, as a young woman prior to coming over to the U.S. because uh, Europe had been um, really wiped out. And she moved over here because she was looking for an opportunity, first person in her family to, to move over here. So first person in the family to leave, leave Holland. So, um, Leonard, you mentioned to me previously that, you know, you've really been thinking about your identity as a Montanan and how that, um, and that that's been evolving as of late. Can you tell us about that? Um, yeah. Um, a lot of this has happened in recognition, you know, of things that we, we like to not think are happening here in Montana. Um, we don't have um, um, the racial protests that they're having in big cities, but we do have the racial issues. Um, you know, it's not just um, it's not just uh, Black America um, that that have struggled with um, with these issues of of you know who who they are and their place in our society. Um, you know, and I've, I've studied some of that and I've come to understand, and, and I'm not, um, I don't feel bad about, um, you know, my, my family's history in Montana. Um, but I, you know, and I, I question uh, the, the term native Montanan and, you know, who's been here longer. <clears throat> Again, it really is a question of, um, Virtually all of us are, are immigrants. Um, the, the, the first peoples, which is what they refer to um, Native Americans in Canada, I, I like that term, the first peoples. They were the first people here, um, you know, in this, in this country. Um, and so I, I recognize, um, you know, the role of, of who I am, and, and, and I've become more aware of that, that... Um, being white, um, we haven't always uh, been the best at, you know, being being good visitors, being good immigrants, um, you know, to this state. So, 
you know, what's what's my role in that? You told me that you've been talking a lot with your children. How old are your kids now? Um, let me see. Um, my son will be 27 next month. My daughter will be 25. And my youngest is 20. Okay. And they are um, much more knowledgeable about this than myself as, as an old white guy. And I don't consider myself to be uninformed, um, but I have been uninformed when it comes to um, looking at it from somebody else's perspective as, um, as a non-white. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, it's a little pithy, but it means so much to me. Um, um, you know, we, um, we, we look at things from our own perspective and, um, like they say, we, we see things as we are, not as they are. And so my perspective on, you know, the, the issues in society are totally different than someone with a different life experience. And that, even, you know, experiences this life in a much different way than I do. Um, you know, I've done some studies, uh, I've done some studying since that time, um, participated in a, in, in a book study group, um, and the book was Me and White Supremacy, and there's some really good information in there. And the supremacy is kind of one of that, that, that kind of a punch in the nose type of term, but we deserve it, you know. We we need to come to an acknowledgement of it. Um, but at its at its foundation is this understanding. Uh, to me, the root is is um, what's white privilege. Um, and in its simplest form, it it you know to understand that I've had an unearned advantage my whole life, and I didn't even know it, and I didn't. The fact that I didn't know it um, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist because it does exist. And as I've studied this, I start to look at things and I go, and I shake my head and I go, um, this would happen differently for someone else than it happens for me. Um, you know, I, I grew up um, poor and white. But I didn't grow up poor because I was white. And so that, that white privilege still existed even though I grew up poor. Where, um, you know, white privilege and white supremacy comes in is that in a lot of cases, a non-white poor person grows up poor because they're non-white. I, was, I wasn't poor because we were white. And I certainly had an advantage to you know, change and to grow from that. Um, but in, in a lot of cases, um, being poor and, and BIPOC is because you're BIPOC, that you're poor. So oh, what is BIPOC? Um, BIPOC, yeah, sorry. Um, black, indigenous, and people of color. Um, it's a, I, I'm not real hep on the, on the acronym, um, but it is more descriptive 
And um, I, I, if if people want to be addressed um, in a more descriptive manner uh, that that fits them, I'm I'm fine with that. Also mentioned to me that um, your evolution on these ideas, um, and, and that being sounds like as a result of a lot of a lot of conversations with your kids and a lot of your own research, um, has put you at odds with people that you've had long friendships with. And I wonder if you're willing to talk about that. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. it. It's still one of those things that I am, I am working through. I haven't lost any friends uh, because of this, and I've been able to have um, good conversations, but um, not as many and not as much as I would I would like to. Um, again, it's a it's a difficult thing. These have been friends of mine for a very long time. Um, and you mentioned, you know, an individual that you that you spoke with that won't even say that word, white privilege. And that's kind of where some of my friends are. Um, and, 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 and these are good people. They really are good people. Um, and, and you start then to start getting into nuances about um, are you, you know, there's, there's a difference between not being racist and being anti-racist. And being anti-racist requires doing something um, about it. And and that to me is where we're at in this society. And so, um, but yeah, it, it, it is one of those things that um, that I, I, I'm willing to, to call them out on, on those issues. But doing it in such a way, uh, I think we use the term call them in, um, in a way where as long as the, the situation uh, works that way, that, that we can have that conversation. So I prefer not to lose my friends, and I prefer that, um, you know, we all, um, we all come together and get, get to a better place, you know, make, th- make this a better place. So... Would you mind sharing sort of in, the, in these com- these hard conversations that you've had with your friends, what is the what is the rub? That, that, that's that's hard. That's hard to say. Um, again, it's that um, it, it's kind of admitting that I, I got something for nothing. You know that 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 I got this way, and someone else isn't getting that way. Um, simply because of the color of my skin, you know, no one, no one wants to be a racist. That, that that's bad. I mean, there, there's very few people that are that are proud racists. Um, I think most people will will acknowledge, and so they they don't want to admit that they're racist. And again, not being racist and being anti-racist are two different things. And um. Silence, um, I think, in the place that we're at in this world right now, uh, silence is consent. You're saying it's okay. Um, if to me, if you're silent on the issue, 
I'm curious what being anti-racist or combating racism generally looks like for you on the day-to-day scale of your life. Um, and to be honest with you, that is that is something I am still coming to terms with. Um, I I I, uh, I, 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 I'm, I think through you know, um, listen, learn, and lead. And I'm kind of still in the learn phase when it comes to that from a personal perspective. From an organizational perspective, though, one of, my, one of the things I've found to be important in my role as a, as a member of the Board of Governors and Leadership Montana is to fully participate in our, um, <clears throat> in our initiatives around inclusivity and um, especially around... Um, outreach within because we're leadership Montana. Um, our big issue is is uh, from from a um, from a racism perspective is Indigenous people and Native Americans. And um, I'm I'm really proud of the work that that you know Chantal and this organization is leading, and I'm I'm doing my part in that. So one of the, one of the concerns I have when it comes to my my actions on this um, is um, having it come across a bit as as tokenism that I'm taking this action you know very intentionally because I'm I'm interacting with a Native American now and you know I've got this this Native American friend now um, you know, so I, I really want to. I really want to find a an arena that that I can feel comfortable in um, when it comes to um, you know working with um, working with indigenous people in this in this state. So, mm-hmm. and um, I am I'm looking. I, I continue to look for opportunities um, to to be active because uh, the other thing, and, and again, these are buzzwords, you know, um, you know, um, white privilege, white fragility, um, you know, white saviorism. Um, I'm going to come in and and help you guys. I'm going to come in and save you guys. You know, it's one of the things that, uh, again, I learned from my daughter through the Peace Corps is that they were, they were taught that early on, that that's not what they're there for. (laughs) They are there to work with, um, you know, the, the, the local, healthcare providers in providing better healthcare. I'll and just we, call it that in that your daughter was in Rwanda. Yes, she was in Rwanda, yeah, in yes. the Peace Corps. And, um, you know, it is um, it is something um, that, again, it, it creates caution. And so trying to find the right role. When I look back, um, you know, over the last number of years in, in Billings, um, things that I did not do um, – that that could have been done, and it wasn't necessarily in in the area of racism, uh, but to me, it's a it's a related issue, and that's the LGBTQ community and the non discrimination ordinance. And I I took a position on it, but I didn't publicly join in in the support for it. Um, and I know now that that's what I needed to do, um, and again to work with. Uh, the movement that was that was there, um, and I didn't, um, you know. And, and it's it's easy to look back and 
um, you know, I, again, I, I, it, it was partly, you know, my, my fear, um, that, that said, you know, I, I believe in that, but I'm, I'm not going to come out and be loud about it or anything. So, mm-hmm. do you think that that fear was based on just not wanting to alienate yourself from people that you share more in common with or what? Yeah. Okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That, uh, um, you know, that, that position might be contrary to, um, you know, other people's views of, of who I am and, and, and why, you know, why they may or may not, you know, want to hang out with me. So, so the courage required to take a, um, con- contrary opinion or stance to people that you normally have similar views with, right? W- tell me about building that courage over time. How is that? What has that looked like o- over the years since? Well, so the non-discrimination ordinance and billings, the most recent iteration failed in 2019. Yeah. So this so. is just a year ago. Yeah. Okay. So how have you grown and changed in that interim? Um, and, and, a, and a lot of this has come, you know, I'm, I, I'm not just because this is for leadership Montana, but a lot of this I came to from leadership Montana and my work in, and my work in gracious space. And that is, um, to, to really, to depersonalize it because a lot of times, uh, as you said, someone, someone doesn't even want to say the term white privilege. Well, then let's not discuss white privilege, but let's discuss some of these things that, 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 do occur that we can come to agreement on, uh, because when we disparage, when we disparage somebody's, um, s- somebody's things that, that they believe in, we are disparaging them. You know, it, it really is. Um, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, someone's pro-life or, um, you know, pro-choice. Um, people personalize that. And so if we are critical of the pro-life movement, we are now being critical of that person. And um, so really the words we use in the language and the way we have those conversations, I've, um, I've become, I, I, I'm improving on those types of things and, and my reactions to them. And again, listening what is it you know about this person that uh, i want them to tell me what it is about the term white privilege that really makes them uncomfortable um so i i, I need to listen i need to hear them um nobody's <laughs> very few people change their mind because somebody told them to um that is something i am i am improving on and, and a lot of that, you know, came from my kids, you know, dealing with my kids. But then also it was, it was, um, you know, hearing it enough in my leadership Montana world and then being able to listen. So, so it requires courage. I, I just, I want to repeat this back and make sure I understand. Um, so yeah, it absolutely like, requires courage. Sure. And well, so, so entering that space, right. Of saying, I'm going to go, um, talk with people of diverse opinions about something like the non-discrimination ordinance or, or racism or whatever it might be requires courage. And 
you feel more courageous because you have a set of tools, some of which are, you know, uh, even as simple as just language, being keenly aware of what language might shut someone completely down. So your courage is sort of um, buttressed by having these tools. And you would say that Leadership Montana sort of offered you those tools. Um, absolutely, they, they, they offered me those tools. And, and a lot of it was um, the Leadership Montana um, created in me a, a, a sense of introspection ever since the, uh, um, the flagship course as far as, um, you know, learning more about, about who I am um, and, and coming to accept some of these things. And again, um, listening and, and hearing, and then again, really thinking through, um, and, and being honest with yourself. And it's really difficult, um, to be honest with ourselves. Um, you know, we don't, sometimes we're too hard on ourselves. Um, but, but a lot of times, you know, we, uh, we rationalize by saying, oh, you're being too hard on yourself. You're not, you're not that, you're not that. So, um, <laughs> so, 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 so part of it is introspective and then, and that I, I gained from Leadership Montana. And then, as you said, the tools, um, and the practice, really the practice of, of working in gracious space. Um, you know, I, I got a lot of tools at home, but I, I, I can't build a house, <laughs> The tools are nice, but the practice is, is probably the most, the, the thing that's driven me, you know, more, more forward on this is that actually, um, you know, taking what I've got from Leadership Montana and, and practicing it. I want to um, shift gears just a little bit. I mean, you talked about how your understanding of LGBTQ issues um, has really sort of provided a, a good um, base baseline sort of framework to understand a lot of these other issues about prejudice and, and things like that. And it sounds like you learned just a ton about that in your time at Tumbleweed. So I, your your career there started in 2017, and um, as I understand, that was your first time in really in the nonprofit sector. Is that right? First time employed in the nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. Yes, you had been on a lot of boards mm -hmm. for nonprofits, but first time really in it on the ground level. Um, and I wonder if so. Can you tee up what Tumbleweed is, um, and then we'll talk about what you learned during your time there. Uh, yeah, Tumbleweed is a is a local nonprofit. They've been around for uh, fifty, uh, roughly fifty years. Um, and they provide um, a broad uh, range of services to uh, runaway homeless and at-risk youth in our community, um, whether that be shelter, emergency shelter, food, um, counseling, uh, family counseling. Uh, a lot of the work that Tumbleweed does is, is preventative, um, providing um you know, opportunities for social services, um, whether that be getting mental health, whether that be, you know, dealing with chemical, chemical dependency, but really it's, it's providing a, a safe place, um, for someone to grow through and grow out of, um, you know, the, 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 the very serious, um, risky situations that they found themselves in. Can you give us a scale, uh, an idea of the scale of this, the problem? The need. Um, 
and, and I'll just just give you a number uh, because it is something that's been measured. Um, that tumbleweed on average when when high school is fully in session, just in the city of Billings, um, worked with um, between seven and eight hundred youth in our community. Um, you know, so that's um, you know half of one of the large high schools in our in our city um, that are dealing with um, situations of, of homelessness, uh, potential homelessness, or, you know, the risk factors that, that create homelessness. Um, when we operated uh, the drop-in center um, and the overnight drop-in center at Tumbleweed, um, you know, there were nights where we would have, you know, up to 30 youth uh, sleeping in our, in our drop-in center overnight um, on a regular basis. Um, a lot of times those were the same people night after night. And then they, there was also a, a changing cast uh, because homeless homelessness is rather fluid, mm-hmm. uh, even within the community. Uh, they find a, a friend's couch to stay on for a while, or they come up with enough money to have a car, and they're living in a car. And, um, you know, that person doesn't consider themselves homeless anymore. Can you sort of paint a picture for what these teens are going through? The, I mean, the, the risk factor, and I don't have the statistics in front of me, um, but being um, being BIPOC, as we discussed, uh, black and indigenous or people of color, um, the risk factors are, you know, multitudes higher for them to be homeless. They just are. Um, youth who identify as LGBTQ, um, again, it, it's it's off the charts. Um, there's a lot of crossover there too. Um, you know, BIPOC who are also LGBTQ, which face a whole different, a whole nother layer of, uh, of issues, whether that be at home or in their home community with acceptance and who they are. Um, alcohol and, and drugs are one of the drivers. Um, obviously that creates an unsafe home environment, um, or the youth are, are dealing personally with their own chemical dependency. Um, sometimes that's in the same situation. Sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes someone's homeless because their uh, their parents are dealing with dependency issues and and making living at home extremely risky. But there there are a lot of youth that uh, that are struggling with um, with chemical dependency, um, alcoholism. Um, that again, for I call them obvious reasons. Um, you know. Maintaining a home is difficult um, when 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 you're being driven by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, mental health issues is another um, risk factor, um, and we don't deal with mental health issues in this country very well. We don't deal with um, you know alcoholism and chemical dependency very well in this society. Uh, we don't fund treatment. Uh, we consider those weaknesses. Um, we we don't look at mental health the same as if you were to, you know, be diagnosed with uh, cancer um, or diabetes or something like that. We don't look at mental health the same way. Mental health is your weakness. It's not a health issue. So um, those are issues that, that are at the, at the foundation of, um, of homelessness. And, and, and obviously, I shouldn't say obviously because these are, these are every bit as tragic, um, but uh, physical and mental abuse at home. And there's 
typically some mental health issue at the, at the root of those as well. But uh, physical and mental abuse um, are issues that um, will create, you know, an at-risk youth um, where living at home isn't safe. So these these youth, um, you know, for the most part are, are very much like we were when we were young or my kids were when we were young. Um, they don't want to be the homeless kid. <laughs> They don't want to be the different kid. Um, you know, they want to have the clothes. Uh, they want to be clean. Um, they want to have a car. Um, you know, th- so they don't want to be thought of as homeless. So one thing is they're, you know, they're trying to hide from it. And the other thing is I think society would like to not believe that that exists, um, uh, especially in the areas where... Um, where it's dealing with some of our, you know, um, really vulnerable populations that mm-hmm. no, we're, we, we, we don't do that. We're, we're better than that. We don't one we don't have that here. You know, when they think of human trafficking, they think of, you know, you know, these, you know, they see these movies about, you know, kids being scooped up and, and hauled off to another city or another country and being trafficked and stuff like that. It's happening right here in this town and it's happening in here in our families um, more people are trafficked by family members than they are by some stranger. Um, that is a sad and tragic statistic. Um, and that's happening right here in our community. So Leonard, it seems that Tumbleweed is like many nonprofits and that their impact on the community is enormous. And despite that, they're not nearly as well known or recognized and supported as they probably should be, just considering just how important they are, not only to the people they serve, but to the community as a whole. I wonder why you think that is. I think one of the reasons is that that, um, a lot of the effort for Tumbleweed and other organizations like that is that uh, they're working really hard on providing services and they don't have as much opportunity to, um, you know, communicate to the rest of the community about what they do and why they're here and why they're important. So when you've got limited resources, and, and I understand this from someone who's, you know, worked there, that better be the focus of your um, of your resources. It's sad that the resources are limited uh, because the education part of this is every bit as critical when it comes to solving this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really tough to say, oh, you know, let's uh, let's spend some money on on marketing and education, or you know, get a person that can do some of that community outreach to the non-homeless community. Uh, to educate them on this, that, that takes resources. And um, this is, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small pie. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I don't know that we're, we're flush enough to do that yet. So it'd be nice if they were because then it, it improves the long game. It really does improve the long game. Um, I, I looked at it from, from my private sector. Um, we had a great product, 
Tumbleweed has a great product. Um, and if we were better at marketing it, um, you know, Tumbleweed would be booming. Um, but it's really hard to, to find the resources to do both those things. Mm-hmm. Deliver a good product and sell that product in the marketplace. So, And by selling in the marketplace, you mean making sure or, or, it's essentially garnering support from the community yes, and a lot of I, times yes, financial yes, support. Absolutely, find, right. finding partners, yep. um, whether that be financial. And, and believe me, this, this community typically responds. Um, the ones that understand uh, the issue um, certainly respond to supporting, to supporting tumbleweed. Um, but n- not as much as we could and we should. Um, and I think that's because we don't understand the importance of it. So, so it's this sort of, um, sort of nasty feedback loop in a way, right? Cause you, what you have is an inability to fund the thing you need to get the more funding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. Um, because most grants, uh, most donors, um, one of the first things they ask is, "Let me let me see your let me see your 990. Your 990 is your federal tax filing, and you have to um, divide up your expenditures between um, overhead between services and, and overhead, and marketing would be considered overhead." Leonard, something we've talked about is the group of norms that sort of guide how folks in the nonprofit world are compensated and the consequences of that. Could you talk about that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It seems to be um, the accepted norm that, oh, you chose to go in the nonprofit sector, so you also understand that you're not going to get paid full market for the same services. Um, that, that seems to be this, this understanding as, as you refer to as talent. And believe me, there is, there is a ton of talent out there. And the fact that, um, they have to accept that, you know, to really, to really work in a job that they're passionate about is, is, is to me, it's, it's terrible. Um, and, and I've seen, um, you know, the, this was this was years ago. You you probably don't remember. It was probably over twenty years ago. It might have been in the nineties. I still remember the news covering. Um, you know the the head of the National United Way, and how much money they were spending on car service and, and that that sort of stuff. And and it was just like scandalous. Um, that someone in the nonprofit sector was being treated like the CFO of a major corporation. I go, well, they are the CFO of a major corporation. Um, so, so part of it is that, as you said, in, in a macro sense, we seem to think, well, that's, that's the nature of the business. It's like we assume that um, – we're going we're gonna to underpay teachers because they knew that going in that, you know, we should underpay them. And so you knew that going in that we're going to under, underpay people in the nonprofit sector. And to me, that, that also means that we are, we are also devaluing the level of service that they are providing. Gosh, I've just struggled with this for a long time, Leonard. And I think a, a part of that is that, you know, there's this 
I think this guiding principle that, you know, you're compensated for um, appropriately based on the amount of impact that you have. And in some cases in the health sector or the humanitarian sector, a lot of times, you know, the impact some well, someone has can be measured in the sense that, you know, a child is housed or, you know, maybe test scores go up. But in so many cases, especially with the topic that resonates so much with me, which is impacting children's lives, that that impact can't be measured. If someone connects meaningfully, for example, with a kid um, and shapes the way, you know, they think about trust and things like that, that is, that's immeasurable. Yeah, so, I think you, I think you just I think you just hit on something that um, that also in our in our society um, in America especially um, is a, is a metric driven thing. Um, you know how many of the how many of the large corporations and even small corporations um, whose executives are paid through the value of their stock or how much money the company makes. You know, there's there's there are bonus systems and stuff like that. And yet what you just said was her impact in the community is immeasurable. But simply because it's immeasurable doesn't mean it lacks value. And I think that's kind of the connection that we make as we go, well, I don't know. Are they, are they really doing any good? Can't put a dollar figure on it. Yeah. So how do you? Yeah, we, yeah. Can't, we can't measure it. You know, how much money do you guys make this year? You know, uh, what's your stock price? Those kinds of things. So uh, the other thing is, and, and some of this is difficult, is uh, – how many kids did you take off the street or, you know, how, how much better a reader is, um, you know, that, that, that low income youth in the, in the preschool that that principal's working at. This is a much longer game than that. Yeah. You know, we're waiting to see, you know, we're going to measure this. We're going to, uh, what's their annual progress? I'm going, yeah. <laughs> you know, pro- progress sometimes is really, really hard to see. And yet it is happening. That's the other thing is that um, too many people are driven by, well, show me, show me, show me the numbers. Mm. Give me the numbers. I'm a numbers guy. But I've also learned that, holy shit, I can show you whatever I want <laughs> with numbers, but it doesn't, it doesn't always reflect reality. Mm. I had one boss who told me, you know, there's a funniest thing, and I always, uh, um, I always like to use this, you know, figures lie and liars figure. So, um, what what do you want the numbers to say? I can do whatever you want. I'm really good with them. That, in the end, that still doesn't that that's so less meaningful than than some of these things that we can't put numbers to. So. So we'll move it now into the lightning round, which I think you're familiar with. This is just rapid response. So just kind of kind of your quick knee-jerk reaction to these uh, prompts I'll at do, first. I'll do my best. I'm sure you'll do great. The most important thing you can teach your children. Um, there are things that uh, are more important than, than themselves in this world. The most important thing your children have taught you. A more open view, a more open perspective on people. Your favorite movie? Um, Blazing Saddles. A book you're reading? A book I'm reading. Um, I am reading uh, Dare to Lead. And I also just read um, at uh, Chantel's behest, um, Love Your Enemies, which I highly, 
highly recommend. As she refers to it, and it's probably true, it's kind of gracious space for conservatives. So, The best thing about being an introvert? Saying no to social invites. <laughs> <laughs> Something you're passionate about that we haven't talked about in this interview? Music. All right. Give me a band. Oh, all of them. Um, give you a band. That, that's... I mean, give me a handful. Just start listing them. Oh, geez. I've been listening to The Killers. I've been listening to The Strokes. Um, Dawes has some new music out. Um, Jason Isbell and the 400 has got some really good stuff out right now. Um, I love the Rolling Stones. Believe it or not, they just released us. A song that uh, they recorded in uh, 1973. Oh, God. And Jimmy Page plays guitar on it. Um, song is called Scarlet, by the way, if you want to listen to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the Stones, um, Zeppelin, uh, Foo Fighters. Um, a bold prediction for the future. I, I, I do believe as a country we will um, move to improve, maybe not necessarily resolve, um, our our race relations in this country. I'm just going to give you a few words and just hear your immediate reaction to them. Progress. Necessary. Vulnerability. Um, something I'm striving for. To be better. Food recommendation. Um, Italian. Just generally, just across the board, all things Italian. Well, especially spaghetti. <laughs> okay. I really like spaghetti. And finally, leadership. Um, I'd say right now, missing. Mm. Leonard Malin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Thanks to Leonard Malin for coming on the show. And thanks to you for listening in. If you've enjoyed today's show and want to show support to Listen First Montana, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're up for it, maybe the most important thing would be to tell a friend about the show. We'd also love to hear your feedback. Please email me, eric, at leadershipmontana.org. Our intro song is a rendition of the Montana State song by Scott Gudger, And our other music is from Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. For Leadership Montana, I'm Eric Halverson. Thanks for listening to Listen First, Montana.